Hello, and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, we're talking about medical cannabis. What makes up a cannabis medical product? How do the active ingredients work in our bodies? What conditions can it treat? And how can doctors prescribe it? We're joined by neurologist and medical cannabis expert, Mike Barnes, and End Our Pain campaigners, Peter Carroll and Hannah Deacon. Hannah fought to obtain cannabis oil to treat her son Alfie's epileptic seizures, and the campaign succeeded in changing UK law. As of November 2018, NHS doctors can legally prescribe cannabis. So why is it still hard for doctors to do so? Mike, Peter and Hannah discuss these issues with journalist Susie Majeur. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution back in January 2019. If you want to hear more like this, head over to rigb.org to sign up for our upcoming talks. We start off with a presentation from Mike Barnes. Thank you. I'll stand up if you don't mind, I can wander around. Um, As you said, I'm I'm a neurologist and a rehab physician, and I'm I'm the warm-up act tonight. And I've I've made the assumption, hopefully rightly, um, that some of you will know a lot about cannabis, and some of you know relatively little about it, so I'm going to sort of do a, a basic introduction, hopefully for about 20 minutes. If I go over, you must wave at me or shout at me or something. <laughs> um, just to tell you a little bit about what cannabis is, what it does in the terms of its medical applications, and then just get up to date with the current UK regulations before passing in to Peter and then to Hannah, who will tell us more about the actual campaign that was conducted in the UK last year with great success. Um, so, that's me. Um, I suppose many of you will still think uh, of of cannabis in that stereotype of the stoner, the recreational use. And I think that many people, that's a problem, because uh, for the last, whatever, 40, 50 years, the image of cannabis has been just that. It's a little bit anti-establishment, it's a little bit um, risque, if you like, um, and getting a mind around the fact that actually this plant has a great deal of of really good medical properties is an issue for many people, particularly, I have to say, for some of my medical colleagues, which we'll come on to later. But I want to... It does have a recreational role, of course it does, but tonight we're going to clearly focus on its medical uses. So cannabis is actually... The history of cannabis is fascinating. Um, It's been around over... Three and a half thousand years. Uh, that's a talk in its own right, uh, but I haven't only got 20 minutes, so I've got to speed on with it. But its early description in history was actually for the medical use first, and then spiritual use, and it's still in many uh, cultures, particularly the Indian subcontinent uh, and elsewhere, it's still used in spiritual uh, religious ceremonies. And of course, then it's its recreational use, which has also been known for a long time. But we shouldn't forget that medical use isn't recent. It's not the last four or five years. It's the last three and a half thousand years. And if you look at this, you'll have to, I'm sure, hopefully we haven't got any Egyptian um, experts in the room who will tell me that doesn't say anything like that. But I think what that says is cannabis, and that is an Ebers papyrus, 1500 BC, so three and a half thousand years ago. That's the oldest fully intact medical text in the world. And that first text mentioned cannabis in this context for, for pain. So it's not exactly new. Um, skipping about three and a half thousand years, um, because of time, we then who introduced it to the UK was this guy called William Brooke O'Shaughnessy. He was actually Irish, uh, but he worked in India. He realised a lot of the uh, local Indian population was using cannabis for medical as well as recreational spiritual purposes. 
um, tried it out on patients with tetanus there and felt it had medical properties, and he was responsible for bringing it back into the UK. It was sold for what it's worth, something called Squire's Extract, uh, for many, for well over 100 years. Um, there's some, it was a perfectly acceptable medicine up to around the 1920s. These are some actually from the States. But it was a perfectly good medicine, a widely used medicine. In the 20s, we, it began to become a little less fashionable for two reasons. One was the modern pharmaceutical industry was beginning to take shape and the old-fashioned, if you like, herbal plant products were a little bit going out of fashion. Uh, and also because of this man, who's called Harry Anslinger, who uh, was the first commissioner of the thing called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. I'm sure you've all heard of J. Edgar Hoover, who was the commissioner of the FBI, who was sucking in the facilities, very political story, he was sucking in the facilities to the FBI, the money to the FBI, and Harry Anslinger wanted to suck money back into his own department, so he came up with a campaign, and that campaign was to like to demonise uh, cannabis. And he was very successful at that campaign. Whatever you think of it, it was nevertheless a very good media campaign, helped by this guy, William Randolph Hearst, that I'm sure you've heard of and familiar with. And between them, they conducted, in about the 1920s, give or take, uh, a very good campaign that basically told the world that cannabis was dangerous, it induced all sorts of mental health issues, it was seriously responsible for a lot of problems in society as a whole, and you shouldn't use it. And as this film is a very well-known film, it's still available on YouTube, uh, it's, uh, it's quite a mad film. Um, it's worth it now for its entertainment value, but in the day, uh, people took it seriously. And... Uh, you know, drug-crazed abandon. Some of you may think that's, that's a, a selling point for it. Um, but, <laughs> in fact, the, the, the very successful campaign then got into the mindset of the culture, first in the States and then in the rest of the world, that cannabis was a bad thing. That was then, if you like, formalised in 1961 when the United Nations produced this thing called the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, which is still in operation um, it, cannabis was introduced wrongly uh, into that uh, uh, banning, if you like. It banned narcotic drugs. It put a lot of restrictions on narcotic drugs. Um, and the Egyptian delegate stood up and said, I want cannabis included in this. That was out the blue. No one could think of a good reason why not. So from that date onwards, by political mistake, if you like, cannabis was included in this UN single convention. And as a result of that, most of the countries who signed up to the UN, which is most in the world, may had various forms of misuse of drugs acts, and in the UK that came into force in 1971, and from that date, cannabis uh, became properly illegal. So it's actually fairly recent. Up to 1971, you could, doctors could still prescribe cannabis, though few were. So very briefly, um, that's, that's a potted history. That wasn't, sorry, that wasn't meant to be a pun. Uh, <laughs> It was not bad, though, was it? It, was, it came out spontaneously. Um, how does um, cannabis work? And I think the thing we all need to know is we all effectively, it's a bit simplistic, we produce cannabis in our own brains. We have natural chemicals that are very like cannabis that interact with cannabinoid receptors, as they're called, in the brain, the spinal cord, and all over the body. And all the plant is doing is having those chemicals very similar, called phytocannabinoids in the plant, endocannabinoids in ourselves. All the phytocannabinoids are doing are interacting with the cannabis receptors in our own bodies. And as the receptors are all over the body, it's not surprising that cannabis has a huge range of properties. 
And people say, well, it can't be. It's a bit uh, snake oilish because it does so many things. But actually, when you know how it works, as it interacts with the cannabis receptors, then it's not surprising it has a whole range of things that it does. And if you look at this list, I'm not going to go through it in detail. You look at its nervous neural system functions. It affects memory, it affects how you can walk and how you control your motor system. It affects pain, sleep, appetite, and then way over left field, social behaviour, anxiety. Then it interacts with other parts of the body, such as the reproductive system, the bowel, the bladder. It has a role in cancer control. So it's a hugely widespread uh, set of um, problems that it's able to deal with. The natural plant, I'm sure you now know some of this, has two main components, THC, that's the psychoactive one, I'll come back to it in a moment, and CBD is the non-psychoactive one. But the point of this slide is really to say there's at least 100 others, and all those, all of those tested have medical properties. So there's a lot, a lot to explore. Uh, it says there um, that the balance between THC and CBD is what we will hear about, and I'll come back to that point, but we shouldn't forget that the plant has a lot of other uh, components and added together, probably, some would say it hasn't been properly tested in double-blind trials yet, which is true, but probably the whole plant works better than the individual components. Uh, that's the so-called entourage effect. And I think there's no emerging evidence that that certainly is the case. I would go as far as say it's definitely the case. Um, but we should also remember not just the cannabinoids, but things called terpenes, uh, things that gives you the, the smell of cannabis, which is very familiar to many of you. Um, I should rephrase that as well, shouldn't I? <laughs> Only as you pass through the streets of London. And, and flavonoids, uh, which give the colour. To, to, they're common in all plants. I'll come back to that. There's, two, there's actually three varieties, but two main ones. Cannabis sativa, tall, gangly. Cannabis indica, a bit lower. They're meant to have slightly different properties, but actually it's, it's the balance of those cannabinoids, terpenes and flavonoids that cause the difference mainly between them. And where you get the cannabis from, for those that don't know, is the unfertilised female flower head. And on that flower head, there's small things called trichomes, they're the white bits on the right, and they contain the cannabinoids and the terpenes. And they're the bits you've got to take out, extract from the plant if you're making an oil or something. And that's where the medicine comes from, from uh, either smoking directly those trichomes in a, in a joint, or um, using them for converting into capsules and oils and vaping and such like I come to. Uh, now, this is where you all switch off, because no one wants to know anything about that, but that is what delta 9 tetracannabinol looks like. I'll pass over that very quickly. That's the THC. That's the psychoactive one, only discovered in 1964. Um, it has these properties, very briefly, it's more than this, it's more complicated, but it is uh, pain-killing, it's anti-itch, it helps breathing, believe it or not. It's protective of the nervous system. It's a muscle relaxant. It's anti-sickness. It's anti-inflammatory. 20 times the power of aspirin. Twice the power of steroids. That's a lot. You put that with cannabidiol, CBD, the one that's legal in isolation in this country and has been for a while. And that also does, look what that does. That's anti-anxiety. And of course, anti-convulsant. That's the main one that the children with epilepsy use. We'll hear about that from Hannah a bit later. And it does other things. It's not sedative and it's not psychoactive. And there's lots of others, all looking similar. I won't go through what they are. CBG, CBC, CBN. Sounds like a sort of television channels. Uh, but they all have medical properties. All of them. THCV, for example, is very potently anti-obesity, so it could have a place uh, as an anti-obesity agent. And then there's the terpenes. There's, there's about a 70 of those. 
Um, and they also have properties. Limoline is one, obviously not surprising, it gives it a lemony smell, uh, prevalent in some strains. That's antidepressant, it probably has anti-cancer effects. For example, then there's linalool, which is a, obviously lavender, anti-anxiety effects, sedative, local anaesthetic and anticonvulsant. And then they've got the flavonoids, which gives the, the colour, but also have medical properties. So you stick all that lot together, and you've got about 300-ish components in a typical cannabis plant, all of which are doing something. So it's not perhaps surprising that a lot of that summates together to have a very good overall um, uh, medical effect over and above the single isolates. But it's still what we hear about and should know about is the THC-CBD balance. You can have THC in a product which gets you high, but if you counteract that by CBD, then you don't get high. So most, not all, but most medical products have that balance between THC and CBD. There is overlap between recreational cannabis and medical cannabis. Some medical conditions do need a high THC, but mainly medical uh, cannabis is higher in CBD and is not, or need not be, psychoactive. Very quickly, what is the evidence? And I think the evidence in med for many things is unarguable. The evidence for chronic pain is unarguable, except for the Royal College of Physicians who managed to argue about it. Um, <laughs> uh, but there's good evidence for uh, effect of different forms of cannabis. I won't go through the slide in detail. In any formulation, and for all types of pain, neuropathic pain, cancer pain, pain from spasticity, arthritic pain, headaches, and it spares opioids. So people with a lot of pain are on opioids. That's dangerous. Many people die every year from opioids. Um, the cannabis can spare the opioid, reduce the dose of opioids, and some people stop them altogether. So there's no doubt that cannabis in various forms, THC, CBD, are both analgesic. Spasticity, we know of. There's a pharmaceutical product by GW Pharma uh, that is licensed. It's one of the very few licensed cannabis products for spasticity. That's muscle spasm after brain injury or stroke or multiple sclerosis. Good evidence for that. Sickness, which is very debilitating in chemotherapy, of course, and other conditions. Very good evidence of that. 23 controlled trials. So we shouldn't forget that there's a lot of evidence here uh, for cannabis usefulness. Or because it's, it's been difficult to do research, because it's been illegal, but nevertheless there's pretty good evidence for some of these things. Epilepsy, I won't dwell on too much, uh, but particularly we've heard the press about the childhood drug-resistant epilepsies and high CBD particularly, but often with a touch of THC, can make a massive difference, and we'll hear Alfie's story later that certainly confirms that. And finally, for CBD, anti-anxiety. THC can, in some circumstances, make people more anxious. CBD counteracts that. But then very briefly... There was moderate evidence, I won't tell you how that was defined, this is from the APPG report that I wrote with my daughter. Uh, slightly less evidence, not surprisingly, but pretty good, nevertheless, for appetite stimulation, sleep, fibromyalgia, PTSD. Some evidence, not a lot, not enough, but some for bladder problems, Tourette's, glaucoma, some parts of Parkinson's disease. And we didn't find there was enough evidence to say anything very much for these things. A little bit surprising, because actually one of the biggest uses of medical cannabis in the UK is for depression but actually there's very little evidence that it helps depression. I presume it does, otherwise tens of thousands of people in this country wouldn't be using it for depression, but nevertheless, in terms of trial evidence, there's not much to, to make a, a sort of firm opinion about. Crohn's disease is there, cancer is there. Uh, we need a lot more work done on them. And we shouldn't forget, I don't like, I type this, so I can't blame anyone else, I don't like the wellness, but let's call it quality of life is better. Um, we shouldn't forget, let's assume for the minute 
that cannabis doesn't help cancer. I think there's evidence that it does in certain circumstances, certain cancers. But there's no reason not to prescribe it, because if you think of someone with cancer, sadly, they may be anxious, they may have problems with sleep, they may have problems with appetite, certainly, they may be nauseous, they may have pain. And cannabis helps all those things. So even if it's doing nothing for your cancer in this circumstance, it's something to cons a medic should consider because it's a product that actually helps your quality of life. So that's something we shouldn't forget when we're saying, oh, we can't prescribe it because it doesn't do any good for cancer. Think about what it can do to help that person. After this campaign that we'll hear about more in a moment, um, in the 1st of November, somewhat to my surprise, I have to say, on the 1st of November, uh, the government did a complete U-turn. Um, and credit to them, I have to say. Credit to the Home Secretary at the time, Sajid Javid. He checked it from last summer, June... I think it was roughly, he was saying it's a Schedule 1 drug, which means it has no medicinal value. No medicinal value. 1st of November, it was moved to Schedule 2, and lo and behold, it does have medicinal value. And from the 1st of November, a doctor, a specialist doctor, that's a hospital doctor, uh, can prescribe a cannabis product for any condition. And it can be not just the pharmaceutical products, that's Sativex and Epidiolex, for those who are interested, but also full extract cannabis product. That's the product with all those other cannabinoids and terpenes thing in various proportions. Uh, so they can prescribe that. Astonishingly, there was no restriction on condition. I thought they might come up and say, well, you could use it for pain, or you could use it for nausea, or you could use it for epilepsy, but there were no restrictions. A doctor, despite what some may say, can prescribe cannabis for any, any condition for which they feel it is the best interest of the patients, taking into account all the evidence for that condition, they can come to their own judgment about uh, whether it should be prescribed or not for any condition. And, and any way of doing it, except smoking. Smoking is not recommended, contrary to a recent national newspaper saying it wasn't. Uh, you can't smoke it, it's still illegal. Um, not surprisingly, doctors would agree with that, smoking is generally not well recommended, so we can't smoke it, but they can prescribe as a vape. You can put it in an edible. And that's serious, because um, if you vape uh, cannabis, it's a, a fairly quick hit and lasts a couple of hours, which is good for some conditions, pain conditions, but somewhat a longer-term effect. So uh, using an edible, it takes longer to come on, if you like, uh, an hour or 90 minutes or something of that order, but then lasts several hours, which is good for people with longer-term, perhaps chronic pain, ideally, where they get a longer-lasting effect. And there's lots of edibles now, including drinks as well, that are, that are now in Canada, for example, in the States where it's legal. Um, we'll see those, more of those coming, I'm sure, over the next year or so. You can use it in creams. Um, okay, who can prescribe? A, specialist, a doctor on the specialist register means a hospital consultant. It's not widely known that a GP can prescribe, but under the direction of a hospital consultant. So they can't have their own autonomous prescribing at the moment. I hope that will change. Um, but a GP can prescribe under the direction of a specialist. But most won't prescribe. That's an issue we're going to come to. 99% plus. In fact, since the 1st of November, other than Alfie, who was before the 1st of November, in fairness, there has been not one single NHS prescription of cannabis written. And that's not a political problem. It's a medical problem. And therefore... Uh, people will never want to prescribe it, sure, that's okay. Uh, but a lot of people don't because they don't understand it. And that's understandable because they've never been taught about it. It's never been in the medical curriculum. They don't know what to prescribe. And I'm sure none of us want a doctor to prescribe for us something that he or she doesn't know about or knows the dose of. 
so a lot of the priority now is to put on teaching and education for doctors so they feel more comfortable about prescribing. We formed something called the Academy of Medical Cannabis, for example, and we've also recently formed a Medical Cannabis Clinician Society as a sort of um, group for doctors to share interest and education. And that's now the priority. So the priority, as I say, the priority now, we've won the political battle, in a sense. We need to win the medical battle. And medical education is number one priority. We need better, more balanced guidelines. That is because the government asked the Royal College of Physicians and the thing called the British Paediatric Neurology Association to produce guidelines to help doctors. I think, my think, and it's a personal view, those guidelines were far too restrictive. And I think the doctors could benefit from a broader and more balanced guideline. Nothing that's overly pro-cannabis in a sense, but gives the, the pros and cons a little bit more balanced way. And I think there's other guidelines too. That's perhaps controversial, but that's what I think. And we need to develop the industry. It's all very well getting, eventually getting doctors prescribed, but if you haven't got products in the country, um, you need it there to prescribe it. So there are three priorities. Educate the doctors, guide the doctors, hold their hands, and develop the industry, which incidentally is an industry that could produce uh, a lot of jobs in this country and a lot of tax income even. So even if you're looking at it purely from a mercenary treasury point of view, in some of the United States states, it is, it's raising hundreds of millions of tax dollars. So there's lots of reasons to do it, but the main one to do it is because it could help an awful lot of people. And we've got a lot more work to do, but we've come a long way since last summer. And that's all I wanted to say. So thank you very much. Very good. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, now hand the floor over to Peter. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a campaigner. I earn my living with a small team trying to campaign for change in a whole range of issues. I used to be, in a former life, a special advisor in the Treasury. Has anybody here ever seen the comedy in the thick of it? <laughs> Let me tell you, that's so close to the truth. <laughs> so myself and my colleagues do have an in-depth understanding of how government works. And sometimes to change government requires the most extraordinary amount of campaigning. Medical cannabis has been denied, if I can express it that way, for 50 or 60 years in Britain. How did we get involved? Well, we do lots of work for lots of commercial organisations and charities campaigning for change. And we enjoy that work. But we were on the lookout three years ago for an issue that was perhaps not a commercial in, uh, issue or one that a charity was campaigning for. Something that was out there in the public sphere, but no one was actually driving and fighting a focused campaign on. And my colleague, Will, who's not with us tonight, he, he met the deputy, former Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, who had a very passionate interest in the possibility that cannabis can help patients with a variety of conditions and we met those patients. And I have to say, it's one of those experiences that you don't forget. When you see people in great pain, coping with very complex conditions, and they found a way forward, illegally sourcing cannabis for a medical use, but are risking being criminalised, being forced into a situation where they're supporting effectively the criminal underworld, because that's the only way they could get the drug. We also met people who were having to go abroad, to America and to Holland, not just on their own, but taking very sick members of their family. Think of the cost and the trauma of that. And it was for that reason we formed a campaign called End Our Pain. Purposefully didn't put cannabis in the title, because in political uh, sphere at the time, cannabis itself is a word that 
induces fear of the Daily Mail headline, which sadly <laughs> still continues to this day, even though we've made huge progress. So we started that campaign, got it going three years ago, got about 44 members of Parliament on board, but we were looking for the one example, the one exemplar that, that, that could, we could put before the nation and the media to say, this is what it means to families. And we had the great fortune of meeting Hannah and her family, I think her, her mum is in the audience too, Maggie, who had been fighting very hard for their son, Alfie, to have the right to use in Britain a medical cannabis product that works so well for him in Holland. They'd done amazing work with their campaign called Alfie's Hope. But what we did was bring the political knowledge and the media knowledge to wrap around that campaign. And I hope we've probably made Alfie the most famous at the time, six-year-old, seven-year-old, seven seven, yeah, <laughs> in Westminster. And then I just want to talk a little bit more about exactly how much effort went in. And you probably think, well, why is that important? Well, actually, it's, I think it's important because the other thing I'm going to tell you and reinforce is this point, that in all my campaigning work, I have never had a situation where we've won a campaign. Medical cannabis is legal in the UK now, as Mike said, with effect from the 1st of November. And yet, hardly any patient in Britain can get medical cannabis. I am truly shocked by that. By the 1st of November, myself and my colleagues were actually actively discussing what do we do next, because the campaign is won. So surely hundreds, possibly thousands of patients will be getting access to medical cannabis. And we are in a situation now where I have actually been at the bedside of a child, similar to Alfie, in intensive care. The child is being pumped full of conventional pharmaceuticals steroids, uh, you will know the names better than me, Hannah, all the AEDs. And I have said to the doctor, please, will you consider prescribing this substance? The parent is here. They will sign a form saying, we won't hold you liable. We just want to try. And the answer has been no. The scale of the campaign to secure a licence, because originally it was a licence, a special home office licence for Alfie, which led to the change in the entire regime, with the legalisation effective 1st of November. The scale of the campaign was truly enormous. On the change.org petition site, at the time of handing it into Downing Street, we had over a third of a million people. It was eventually to reach about 700,000 people. We had 45,000 members of the public who were prepared to engage with the campaign, email their MPs. In one four-hour window, we had 108 members of Parliament come to meet Hannah, Maggie and Drew, and even Alfie, because he was present on the day. Parliamentarians were out, outstanding. Right from the very first time that Alfie's case started to get prominence, the, a, there was an all-party parliamentary group on general drugs reform. I think uh, Lord Bassam, who I'm not sure if he's in the audience today, I think he is, maybe, he was very active in that. MPs like Crispin Blunt, they were behind it. And we, got, we generated a huge number of MPs who were supportive. You saw Sir Mike Penning, who was saying, if Alfie doesn't get this licence for this drug, I'll personally go and get it from abroad to bring it. So this campaign took a huge amount of effort. It was probably one of the biggest campaigns of, of our time in the last few years. And that's why I personally, at the moment, feel heartbroken that despite all of that work we're in a situation 
where we are forced to keep campaigning because we're in a situation where the political battle has been won. How rare is it to say the politicians have made a bold decision and done it quickly, relatively quickly. Yeah, they've said no for 50 years, but once this campaign got traction, by the 1st of November, medical cannabis is legal, and then we're in a situation where the medical professionals, the NHS, the body corporate medical in Britain is not for some reason prepared to embrace this new way forward. And please don't mistake me, I'm not in any way saying that doctors or consultants are bad people. Obviously they're not, because they care, that's why they're in healthcare. But something systematically is wrong when good people who generally do good things are not doing things which will help, in our view, very vulnerable people. So that little boy played a very large part in changing the law, as did other cases. There was the Billy Caldwell case, not associated with us, not run by us, but I commend those people for their campaigning efforts. But Alfie, when he gets older, you're going to have to tell him. He's one of the few people that's been instrumental in changing the law. One of my favourite things about campaigning is to go back to the origin of the word. To win these battles is really, really intensive, emotionally, from a resource point of view, from a creativity point of view. So many people campaign and so few win. And uh, my colleague Millie found the last definition, which I love, the period in which a blast furnace is continuously in operation. That was the level of campaign. I don't quite know why it refers to blast furnaces, but that's, that's the level of severity that we had. So this is the fundamental divide now. Downing Street, Whitehall, Westminster, law change. Royal College of Physicians, the British Paediatric Neurology Association, the NHS, refusing, well, I'm going to choose my words very carefully here, in a situation where people are going to their specialists, I'm going to talk about childhood epilepsy now, they're going to their NHS consultants and saying, here's my child, we've tried many different drugs, we now want to try medical cannabis, and they are saying, and writing, so if you doubt me, I can share you some anonymised versions of this correspondence, that the NHS uh, guidelines and the recommendations from the British Paediatric Neurology Association and the RCP don't allow me to prescribe. This is not true. Any clinician in the country that's on the specialist register has the right to look at the guidance, take it into account, consult other experts, perhaps they could consult Professor Mike Barnes, to read about the subject generally, take information from other patients, take all sorts of evidence, and if they, on their own, feel that it's in the best interests of the patient, they can prescribe. Would you agree with that, Mike? That's absolutely right, yep. But we're in a situation where they won't. One consultant wrote a prescription for a child, a very sick child called George, I'll show you a picture of her later, and was so nervous about being reported to the GMC, the General Medical Council, that she withdrew that prescription. I had to get the senior people in the NHS, the medical director of NHS England and the chief pharmacist of NHS England to personally contact that consultant and reassure them. Why, why is that? Doctors quite routinely prescribe what's called off-label. So they'll take a drug that's prescribed for adults to cure condition X and they might write a prescription for children, even though there's been no full RCT double-blind trials for children. They'll, they'll take that risk. Personally, I think a lot of it's to do with the word cannabis. If somebody said, we've got this component, it's called X45, 
And if you give it to a child, it can, not always, but can have a very profound impact, positive impact on the seizure frequency. We'd all be saying, let's get it, let's get it. So there's a psychological and cultural problem, and we have to solve it. Now, we have battered the NHS. We have battered NHS trusts with correspondence. We've even considered legal action to break this. Personally, I think the only way forward now is for the NHS to say, the law has changed over there. Over here, we've tried to bring this medical cannabis, this range of products, into use as if it was a conventional pharmaceutical product, and it's not worked. I think they need to do their own trial, their own observational trial. We, myself and my colleague Millie, who sat in the audience, we are helping 15 families with children very like Alfie. I think the NHS should take them in, perhaps work with Mike Barnes and others, and do its own observational trial. If we don't do that, we're going to be permanently log-jammed. And that, I think, is just totally unacceptable. If we don't, this is not a cheap political point, if we don't, for hundreds, thousands of patients, and for me, with a personal link to the children with epilepsy, nothing will have changed. And I can't live in a situation where we've had a change in the law through the great efforts of Hannah, her family, what we were able to do to support them, and other campaigners. And then those families continue to suffer. These are some of the children. Georgia, up there, this is what we've had to do for Georgia. So she's your top left. Do you know we've had to go to a private consultant? And to my knowledge, she's the only one, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, the only private consultant, couldn't get anyone in the NHS, who was brave enough to read those guidelines, take a general view of the picture of evidence from across the world, talk to people like myself, to Mike, to the senior manager in the NHS. She wrote the prescription. George's dad is having to spend £896 a month on the drug because it's a private prescription. It's simply not fair. Sophia, she's in Northern Ireland. She was the second child that we helped. We did a mini Alfie campaign around Sophia and she gets it because she's in Northern Ireland on the NHS. Tegan, absolutely heartbreaking. I actually stood by her bed in the hospital uh, just across the River Thames, the Elvelina, and I personally begged the medical team to consider using medical cannabis with her mother in tears next to me. And the answer was, we don't have a policy to do that, which I think is totally unacceptable. Uh, Bailey is in Wales, bottom right. His mother is desperate. He's been in a hospice for some time. We've written to the Welsh Government. We've written to the boss of NHS Wales. We've written to the boss of NHS England to write to the boss of NHS Wales. We've offered them all sorts of advice. But the fear, the fear of this new medicine is still so strong. I hope that's given you a flavour of the battle. I hope that you might share my concern that having won the battle politically, we're in a situation where very vulnerable children and many hundreds, possibly thousands of adults with a whole range of conditions at the moment can't get access to something that the government of our country has legalised. To me, that is totally, absolutely unacceptable. And we as a bunch of campaigners, working with our parliamentary colleagues, are absolutely determined to find a way, whatever that way is, that this impasse is broken. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much.
So, Hannah, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about your story, just to rewind it, rewind the clock a little bit, and tell us what it was like for you with Alfie before um, before everything changed. Um, what, what was it like? How many seizures? How many seizures was he having, and how? What impact? When did they start? Well, Alfie started having seizures when he was eight months old. Um, his first seizure was when he was eight months old. I found him in his cot having a huge tonic-clonic seizure, took him straight to our local hospital, um, and it it was pretty obvious very quickly that he was very seriously ill. Um, we spent three and a half months in hospital the first time. He was on a life support machine for three and a half weeks. He was seizing the whole time. We ended up at Great Ormond Street Hospital, where they tried seven different anti-epileptics and nothing worked, and in the end, um, he was given steroid, intravenous steroids. Um, because they said they think, thought he was having an immune response, um, and it stopped, and his seizures stopped, but he was like a newborn baby. He lost his swallow, he couldn't sit. It was extremely traumatic. Um, we went from being normal parents to being in a situation where, you know, it was just hellish, and being around lots of very sick children, it was just, yeah, it was shocking, and probably something I'll never get over experiencing. Um, and we took him home and he stopped seizing and we thought maybe it was an isolated incident, but then it happened again. Every eight months he had clusters of seizures. Again, intravenous steroids were used. And then when he turned four, um, those seizures started, the clustering happened every three weeks. He was diagnosed with a condition at age five called PCDH19, which is a clustering epilepsy which starts in infancy um, and causes mild to severe learning delay and very, very catastrophic seizures which are unresponsive to most medications. It is also something that is only affects girls usually. So I think there's about 500 girls in the world with it and only nine boys. So it's a very, it's very, rare indeed. very rare condition. So there's no research and there's no understanding of the condition. How many drugs are you having to give him at this stage? Uh, we were giving it? him lots... Of, we, we tried lots of anti-epileptics and as I say, it was, as, at four, it was every three weeks. So he was going into hospital every three weeks having intravenous steroids very seriously ill and then at five it started to happen every week and at that point he was having up to 25 doses of intravenous steroids a month which are not licensed to give to children and obviously we had to use them because it stopped his clustering but he was very seriously ill and when we got him home he was very violent and aggressive and I had a three-year-old daughter as well who I couldn't leave with him um I've got a video, um, we've got a Facebook page called Alfie's Hope, so if you're interested, please go and have a look and you can see the videos of him and you can see the videos of me. Um, we were in crisis, we were absolutely in crisis. He was very seriously ill. My partner Drew says we were surviving and we were. We were literally living in hell, you know, watching our child be so ill. We had a little daughter and we were just going in and out of hospital in an ambulance every week and hoping that he wouldn't die. And our consultant at the time said to us, you know, our local paediatrician, he said, you know, he will die if you carry on like this. He will either get psychosis and he'll need to be sectioned or his organs will fail and he will die. And at that point, I decided I needed to do something about that because I wasn't going to watch my child die. So what, what, what did you, I mean, presumably you were Googling like... like yeah, I just, um, I just thought, well, what do steroids do? And I, you know, Drew and I talked a lot about it, and steroids suppress your immune response. So I wanted to look for a way in which we could replicate that without killing him, basically. So 
um, I just did lots of research and um, I came upon a lady called uh, Vera Twomey, who's in, South, who's in the Republic of Ireland, and she was campaigning for medical cannabis for her daughter. And I then talked to people in America on the PCDH19 support group in, on Facebook. And there was a, f a few families there who'd got similar situation to me in hospital every week. And then, you know, we, same as us, tried the ketogenic diet, tried very lots of um, combinations of anti-epileptics, which either for Alfie did nothing or made his seizures worse or gave him such severe side effects that he was so violent or aggressive or tearful that he had no quality of life, um, but actually didn't stop the seizures either. So, um, and they were saying, you know, our seizures have stopped or the seizures are 50%, 60%, 70% improved. And I thought, well, you know, I have to try this. And it was all what drove me is because I was watching my child suffer, but also watching my family suffer. And we were so lucky. We had such a good support network around us that kept us going because we had no other support. Um, but I knew that if my son at five years old was going to be sectioned, I needed to know as a mother that I had done everything to save him from that because I couldn't bear the, the thought of that. So that's what drove me. And this is, this is when you moved to Holland? Yeah, um, we went to our consultant in July. We went and had a stay uh, for a whole month in the hospital where he tried to do lots of other things. We used immunoglobulins and different combinations of medication that weren't steroids, and he ended up in intensive care. And I plucked up the courage because previous to that, with a different consultant, I actually spoke about using medical cannabis broad and was threatened with social services. I wonder what sort of me. reaction you'd had. I mean, if we've been I hearing... was terrified about dealing, you know, after that, it really upset me. And I just thought, you know, I'm trying to save my son's life. I don't, I'm not trying to say I'm going to grow a plant and give it to him. I want to take him abroad and do it properly. So I spoke to our, our new consultant and I just said to him, you know, what do you think about going to Holland and treating Alfie with medical cannabis? We'd use a paediatric neurologist. And he's, his words were to me, you have no choice. And I will be forever grateful to him because he put Alfie's care first. He didn't worry about, you know, what the hospital would say or anything like that. He just did what he thought was right for Alfie. So we went and we found a paediatric neurologist and where we were there you? for where five did, months. Where, where, where we went to The Hague in Holland and it was frightening. You know, we're so used to having so much support from our family and we literally went, no friends, no family, stayed in a holiday park in The Hague. <laughs> Um, we raised a lot of money before we went because my partner's self-employed and I was a full-time carer, so we didn't have any money to go. And again, our family helped us with all the fundraising. So which you, your partner, Alfie and his sister. And Annie, yeah. And um, we went to see the doctor. And again, she was just amazing. She she looked at Alfie holistically. She looked at his lifestyle, his what he ate, you know, all these wonderful things that have never been talked to us about. And um, she prescribed him Bedrolite uh, full extract CBD, which has a very tiny amount of THC in. And the first five weeks, it didn't do anything. And he was still going to hospital in Holland every week with clusters. And it was really frightening time because I just thought, have I got this wrong? Am I wrong? And if I am, what the hell am I going to do? Because I can't watch him die. I just can't. And then it worked. And then he went 17 days without a seizure. And then he went 21 days without seizure as we were upping the dose. And we saw no side effects. And he was happy. And we were happy. And it was just... It was amazing. I mean, it took me... It had, I mean, I still now worry about him. I think going through two and a half years of taking your child into hospital pretty much three times a month in an ambulance, watching him have a tonic-clonic seizure going blue is going to traumatise anyone. And so, you know, I didn't instantly think wow this is amazing but it, it's taken me time but 
I, I couldn't believe it was working at the time because nothing else had worked. And then after three months, we added in a very small amount of THC under the guidance of the doctor and his seizures stopped. And he was just, he was just having a life. And, you know, after five months, we had to come home though. <laughs> So, what happened after the five months? You ran out of money? Or? Uh, we ran out of money and also my mum had done a lot of work with trying to um, make links with the uh, APPG on drugs reform, Baroness Molly Meacher. Um, had, we'd spoken to her at length and we just felt at the time that coming home and fighting our cause from home would be more effective. That so meant giving up the drugs. Yeah, we had to take him off the medication, which made him very ill. Um, we put him back on a CBD medication when we were at home, um, which helped stabilise him, but we had to get rid of the THC completely, so he was still not well. Um, and that's when Mar Baroness Meacher introduced us to Peter from End Our Pain, and Peter came to see me at my mum's house. I remember when i just got back from Holland, and he said to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, campaigning is like a roller coaster. You get really highs and lots of lows. And he said, are you ready? And I was like, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> I just remember, I'll never forget it. And he was absolutely right, because it was just the most amazing. I mean, we, I was on BBC Breakfast, I think, within a week. And that was my first appearance. And it was just amazing, because we had so much support. And there's so much public support for it. And... You know, it was an amazing four months and, you know, I'm so grateful to Mike. I mean, Mike um, put the application in for our licence without these two men here. You know, Alfie might not be here. I mean, I'm just so grateful to them. And, um, yeah, we got the first licence. On the 19th of June, the Home Secretary stood up in Parliament and announced Alfie's licence would be issued and that there would be a review into medical cannabis. So I was obviously so proud of that but as Peter says nothing has changed and I spend uh, you know I work as an ambassador friend of pain now and I work with Mike and we work with families trying to support them and I speak to families every single day who were like I was with Alfie and it breaks my heart to know that a lot of these people don't need to be suffering the way they are um, so that's why I carry on campaigning because I couldn't just have my son okay and not other people it's you know not now I've seen the change in Alfie. And so can you just talk a little bit more, just so that we can really understand when... So yeah, he hasn't had I mean, a seizure at all since no, he started this? No, condition. since he was put back on his THC, he's had no seizures at all. He's had 340 days out of hospital, which is the longest in his whole life. It's amazing. Um, he's learnt to swim, he's learnt to ride a bike, he's learnt to ride a little horse called Henry every Sunday. He's happy. He has learning difficulties and speech delay, but his speech is coming on really well. We have a life where we can plan. We have a life where we can feel normal. I mean, I remember sitting in my house when Alfie was very ill and he would sit and, as I say, you can watch the videos online um, on my Facebook page, hit, hit me, pull my hair, scratch me. You know, he was so ill. And I'd watch all the mums take their kids to school. So we've got a little school at the end of our road and I just wanted to be them. I just, that's what drove me. I was like, I want to be a normal mum. You know, I want to plan a life and I couldn't and um, that's what drove me and now he has that life and my daughter has a happy life and you know me and my partner just went away for two days to Devon there's no way we could have done that before and you know we went through something that probably was the most traumatic thing anyone can go through you know watching a child that you know your child suffer the way I watched Alfie suffer is the most horrendous thing I've ever experienced in my life but it's taught me something really special is that I know what matters in life now. 
And if you've got people that love you and you've got your health, then nothing else matters. And I'm so lucky for that because I wouldn't have ever learnt that if I had not been through what I've been through with my son. And were you, was there ever a moment when you were in Holland before you went, while you were there, especially during those first weeks when nothing was changing, that you were, you know, worrying about what you were giving him, you know, what the doctors were, were giving him? Any possible no, side no. I mean, I'd done so much research, and as I said, I, you know, that's I immersed myself in learning, and that's the sort of parent I am. You know, at, right at the beginning, when Alfie was very sick, we were prescribed chloral hydrate. Now, chloral hydrate was what they used to call in Victorian times knockout drops. It's seriously dangerous drug. There is no clinical data in children. I was giving it to my baby to make him sleep. And I just thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? And it just really switched something on in my head. And I just thought, you know what? I'm his mother. I need to learn about what I'm doing and what I'm giving him and I can't just trust these people that they're doing the right thing for my son. And I just went on this huge journey learning about stuff and I did so much research into medical cannabis and the endocannabinoid system and what it was and I watched YouTube videos with Professor David Nutt did some YouTube videos about the endocannabinoid system and I just... I knew my stuff and I never ever, I, I know, and I was saying this to Mike earlier, I know that Alfie's outcome will be the best it can be on this medication. And I know that if I hadn't have done this, that he would be mad or not here. And I didn't want, you know, I, I've never doubted what I've done for him. Absolutely not. Have you ever had any sort of negative reaction from any other parents who sort of find it hard? I'm just thinking, you know, there is this, I'm just going back to the divide that we've seen, mm. that we've heard about, and just trying to struggle, struggling to fathom how anybody couldn't want to, to help or to prescribe or to... No, I mean, I, I'm very lucky, actually, that I, you know, I... I try to create... I've created a network of mothers around me and fathers. You know, mostly it's mums, but, you know, Robbie. I know Robbie, who's George's mum. Uh, dad, sorry. And, you know, I've always... Tr I've, I've said to them, it's wrong that Alfie has this medication and you don't. And I've always... I've fought for them. And they all are really grateful for that. Mm. No-one has said to me, well, it's wrong that you've got it and we haven't. Because I... You know, I went out there, I did that, I took my son, you know, abroad. And actually, you know, there are some people that come to me and say, I want you to do it for me. Basically, I want you to do it for me. And no one did it for me. I had to do it for me. I had to do it for my child. I had to do it for my family. You know, I can't do it for other people. What I can do is offer them support and offer them understanding and emotional support. And I do that. And I'm very lucky, actually, when I went to Holland, I felt like I was the only mother in the world that was going through what I'm going through. Mm. And having those network of mothers now, where we all get it, we all get the pain and the sadness and the grief that you feel for a living child when they're not the same as everyone else's child. And it's really helped them and me, I think, to sort of as a therapy to talk to each other. And I'm really lucky that I've found them. And um, I've never had any negative feedback from people because they understand that I was just... I was very lucky. You know, my mum always says it was serendipitous. It was just... I was so lucky to meet Peter and Mike and to have that help, and I know that, and I appreciate his, his, medica his medication every single day. And did you meet other families in Holland who had been through similar no, circumstances? No, no, no. I know families who are going there now, and that's mm. obviously what the real worry is with this, the law mm. change, is that people are still going abroad, but people will also break the law. Mm. And parents of very vulnerable children who are very vulnerable themselves, who don't get mental health support, who don't get respite, are going to break the law. Mm. And that's so wrong because they don't know what they're buying, they don't know 
who they're buying from. They don't know if this oil is safe. But that's what will happen. Would People you, will prey on them. Would you have done that if, if you hadn't got mm, the licence? No. No. I would have took him back to Holland. I mean, we said that when the licence was revoked and we weren't sure about get, whether we would get our NHS prescription when the law changed. Drew and I would sell our house and go and live in Holland. We don't want to do that. But I, need, I know the medication that Alfie uses works and I wouldn't use anything else. Mm. But, you know, people are very vulnerable when they have sick children. Very vulnerable. Mm. And they see in the media, oh, cannabis could be this wonder drug mm. and my doctor's blocking it and won't talk to me about it and says I can't do it. What are they going to do? And it's really very, very concerning to put parents in that position. It's different when you're an adult, because that's your choice. But when it's your children, it's not a position that people should be put into. Moving into the Q&A session, our chair, Susie Majeur, kicks us off by asking, why are many doctors not taking the opportunity to prescribe cannabis to their patients? There's a paranoia, if I, I hope that's not too critical a word. There's a hypersensitivity to them prescribing a drug which causes harm. Uh, many in the audience will be f uh, familiar with the story of drugs like thalidomide, where the medical profession went down a route, and it was a disaster. So I think we have to be a little respectful of, I don't think they're willfully saying this because they're bad people, they're systematically programmed now and structurally organised that they, they, they don't feel they can prescribe something unless they've seen these rigorous double-blind mm. trials. The bit that's gone in, in that zeal, that understandable zeal, to never do that again... They've lost, in my view, that element that everyone needs in professional life, common sense. Mm. I mean, I've, I've heard a consultant say, we won't give it to your child because it might damage their brain. Mm. Their child is suffering the most horrendous epileptic fits, is, is physically harming themselves. And the parents are saying, I'll take that chance. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you think, Mike. I think that's absolutely right. I think there's several reasons. It's not one. Um, yeah, I would agree. There's not enough double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. Mm. That's a sort of gold standard. What, um, what will it take for but, us to get those? Well, my, my point is that I don't think they'd ever work mm. because cannabis is a family of medicines. It's not one medicine. If it was one medicine, you could do it, a study on it and go through the normal pharmaceutical route. As I pointed out, hopefully, in that talk, uh, cannabis is mm. hundreds of different varieties. Each one will help a proportion of people. But each one, if you do a study in its own right, will only help a, perhaps 20% of people. So statistically speaking, it's not likely to be positive. If you take the whole lot, it would be positive. If you take an individual medicine and go down the standard pharmaceutical route, it probably won't be positive. So I don't think that we'll ever get to the same pharmaceutical standard. I don't think that matters, mm -hmm. uh, frankly. I think that's ridiculous. And I think that the mindset of most doctors is down this traditional pharmaceutical route. And I think mm. for this medicine, it's the right route. Okay. There's other mm. reasons. There's, there is the adherence to the guidelines and doctors don't like going out. And we shouldn't forget that there's an unlicensed medicine. So doctors prescribing it will have to take personal responsibility. So if anything does go wrong, it's their head on the block. Mm. And we shouldn't forget that. Mm. I, I don't think it's a good enough reason, but nevertheless it is a reason, and that of course is the reason why the trust who would have to approve these prescriptions also don't want it, because they, they want to, to put it bluntly, cover their backsides. Mm. So there's, that's another reason. Some doctors are arrogant and don't like being told what to do, and, and families who are far better knowledgeable than they are, mm. far better, uh, I think there's another reason. 
So there's, I think there's a whole lot of reasons, but I, th I agree entirely with Peter. A lot of doctors have simply lost their common sense and forget what they're doctors for. Sorry, I will go back to the floor, but I just want to... Just, it's an unlicensed medicine. I mean, how can it yes. be licensed? What will it take for that to change? Well, that's in many... Because that's the key in yeah. other countries, isn't it? That's how yeah, we get I mean, around it. People forget, I think, that you can make this to a very high standard called GMP, as Hannah said, mm. good manufacturing That's how they practice. get around it in other countries. They don't yeah. have trials. They have something called GMP, which is good manufacturing certification, which basically means it's a pharmaceutical-grade product. So that means it's safe exactly. to administer, and that's how you get around it. That's what they've done in loads and loads of other countries. So it's, we need to be learning from other countries in where they've got medical cannabis-regulated industries rather than, as you say, trying mm -hmm. to do it... You don't need to pharmaceuticalise something that's already very safe, yeah. that's in its whole plant form, is fine, because you can only do double-blind placebo trials on a singular entity, and you can't... If you split it all up, it doesn't work as well. So you just have to use okay. it in the yeah. whole extract form and make sure it's GMP certified so it's really safe and it's clean and there's no impurities. And that's what they do in Holland, that's what they do in Canada, that's and that's right. how they get around it. So sort of to, to pharmaceuticalise it and say, well, we've got to have all these double-blind placebo trials and stuff, it doesn't need to happen. And actually, it won't work like that. As we've seen with Epidiolex, it helps... It's got its place, but it's not this wonder drug. Because it's a singular cannabinoid, it doesn't work as well. You need a okay. different licensing system for cannabis products. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So is that perhaps safe, another, another consistent? It's another, another potential, campaign. Another <laughs> potential campaign. And many, <laughs> most countries have done that. They've oh, set yeah. up a cannabis yeah. approval process to take it through a totally different route. And we've got to get out of our mindset mm -hmm. that this is a pharmaceutical product and has to go through the same hoops yeah. as a pharmaceutical product. It doesn't and can't. Sort of two questions, if I may. Um, one is in Germany, um, doctors can prescribe for pain. Uh, can you share with us your experience uh, or knowledge of the German system and how well the doctors there have taken on board um, cannabis for pain treatment? Uh, I, I can't do in much detail about the German system. I think Germany a little bit ahead of us in terms of when this was allowed, two to three years, perhaps people know better than I do, of that order. Um, but the similar problems have arisen at a huge reluctance among the medical profession. And the latest figure I've heard of, that just 2% of German doctors are prepared to prescribe. 2%. Now, actually, if we develop another mindset in this country, going back to the earlier question, if we get a group, small group of cannabis expert physicians, we may need just, say, 100 out of whatever number of tens of thousands of doctors in this country, set them up as a regional, regional entity, enough to be in each region, which has got a standard practice, regional neurological centres, regional neurosurgical centres, regional cannabis centre, perfectly acceptable, and get, the, the, say, the paediatric neurologist, to continue that example, to work alongside a cannabis expert. If they don't want to be experts, fine, but work alongside someone who is an expert and have a shared care, joint working. It's a standard model in medicine. It's not revolutionary. You know, I used to do a, a joint clinic with an orthopaedic surgeon for children with um, spasticity. I'm not a surgeon, and the surgeon worked with me, and I advised on the medical side, and he advised on the surgical side. It's perfectly acceptable. So what they're beginning to do in Germany, I think, is to have that sort of system by default, because there's not enough doctors to go around. So they gather together in, in regional groups, and that helps the problem. That's not a total answer to your question, but it's, it was best as I know. Thank you. The other one is a suggestion of a bit of a civil disobedience. If nothing's going to change, maybe we should all go to Westminster and smoke a big reefer. I don't smoke myself, but <laughs> I think a lot of people would notice that. <laughs> no, no comment. Can I, can I, uh, 
<laughs> I, I think I, I can understand the spirit of your contribution there, but, but, but I, 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 actually one of the main things we have to do with the politicians is have as big a gap as possible between this concept of smoking a, a reefer and medical cannabis because that is so toxic in the political world and it's the thing that the Daily Mail are desperate to jump on to say, yes. all you medical cannabis campaigners, you look all nice and cuddly, but really what you're after is you want to get recreational use in Britain, which is absolutely, certainly in my case and my colleagues, absolutely not true. So we've got to keep this perception that it is a medicine. That's why we show pictures of it. In a, it's a, it looks like a medicine, probably tastes like a medicine. No, it tastes like oh, cannabis. I know. <laughs> Actually, I've known Hannah quite a long time. How do you know? I, well, I, don't, I smelt it. I oh, smelt okay. it. It smells very okay. basically impotent, but it is because Alf, what the, the drug the medicine Alf uses is basically cannabis in oil. So there's no yeah. other stuff in it. Which I think you might find like that, that Sir Mike Penning, who you saw very briefly, who is a formidable member of Parliament, I think him and his colleagues may well do the civil disobedience uh, on the parliamentary level because the, the level of passion... I'm happy to say this, so politicians take a lot of stick in our society, um, but the level of passion and personal commitment and investment in this is an issue is so high that they won't let it go, and I suspect you'll have civil disobedience from MPs, which will be awful fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, was there a question here? Hi, um, I'm Dax. Um, when all this first started blowing up in the news, the... UK Chief Medical Officer put out a report and one of the things in that report was that the evidence for its use in epilepsy despite, uh, sorry, except a few specific childhood syndromes was unevidenced or against evidence in the Chief Medical Officer's report. Um, I'm just trying to understand if there's any rationale for that because I was quite shocked. I use it myself for, among other things, epilepsy and it's more effective than Keppra and basically everything the doctors have prescribed with far better side effects. Mm. But the chief medical officer was saying it's not evidenced for adults or most forms of epilepsy. Can you sort of explain their um, rationale behind that? I think the rationale goes back to the pharmaceutical mindset because the one drug that is licensed in the States, called Epidiolex, which is a pure-ish CBD isolate, um, has been tested in two syndromes, Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastelt syndrome. And the pharmaceutical mindset says that's the only, that's the only syndromes it works in. Whereas a common sense mindset would say it's not treating those syndromes, it's treating the epilepsy, it's treating the symptom. And there is, for example, it's never been tested in PCDH19, but it works remarkably well. And you never will test it in PCDH19 because you're going to get them, if you tried it on every boy in the world, you'd have a trial of nine. <laughs> You know, it's never going to work that way. So, again, it's because we can't use it out of anything else except those it's been tried in. It's a very narrow-minded mindset and is plain wrong and totally lacking common sense. That's the problem. Thank you. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask. I currently use it illegally. With the support of my doctors, they know I do it. My GP, my neurologist, my epilepsy nurse, my gastro, my chronic pain specialist, they all know I use it and support me in using it, but none of them are willing to prescribe it. Is there any... I don't know how to start going about sort of pushing for that change, not just for me, but I know there's a lot of other people in similar situations. I don't know where I'd start making that change. My request would be that you sign up with all your friends to endarpain.org 
Uh, on the website, you'll also see a direct email address to us. I think it's campaign at endarpain.org. Please just email us because, as I said earlier, we're very well advanced now in a plan to relaunch a campaign which is like Alfie Max for all the families. So if you were willing to join that, we're just picking our moment because you might have noticed that the politicians are a bit distracted at the moment by something else. <laughs> Yeah, so the moment we get a lull in the Brexit fiasco, uh, fury, then um, we, we are going to go back on the offensive in Parliament. And I don't think there's any other way of changing it. Thank you. Uh, hi there. Um, my son has had epilepsy for 10 years, and um, our recent meeting with our consultants, well, I, there seems to be a lot of confusion within the NHS about this, because our epilepsy nurse said very clearly that our consultant could prescribe it. But when we had the meeting with the consultant, she said it had to go through the NHS trials first, which would take up to two years. Sure. And, then, and then following that, it would depend on whether the NHS actually wanted to fund it. So they may only fund it for Dravet syndrome or a specific syndrome. So there just seems to be, it just seems to be a total mess. I mean, you can't get a clear answer from anyone, and I don't really understand why that is. Why I mean... <laughs> They don't want to do it, and there's people making up, depending on who you, who you talk to in the country, they're making up all different stories, depending on which doctor you speak to, and that's, it's so upsetting, because I've always said this, if it's good enough for Alfie, then it's good enough for every other child in this country, and why did they give me a licence, because I was because I met the Prime Minister and I went on the radio and I talked about it, and that is plainly wrong, yep. that you... I did what I did, so I get what I want, and then everyone else doesn't do that, so they don't, and that is why I carry on doing what I'm doing, because it's disgraceful. And, um, you know, Peter, Peter will know more about that than me, but I just wanted to say that, you know, it's wrong, what they're saying to you. She, as a specialist, can prescribe any full extract cannabis oil, Bedrocan, Tilray... You know, that is the law. Funding is an issue, but again, like I was speaking to a few doctors who said, oh, but it's expensive, but that really drives me nuts as well because it's, it's about the social impact on the family, yeah. on the child, mental health, you know, having be lived through it, the mental health impact, the long-term care needs of your child. If they become very, very ill as adults, they will need residential care. It's so short-sighted. Let's stop their epilepsy now and give their brains a chance to get better. And they could, you know, like with Alfie, if he carries on the way he is, he will probably be able to live an independent, supported life. Whereas if he didn't, he would be in a home, you know, and, and it's just so short-sighted and it... Well, I mean, it's so wrong. She, she basically told us that uh, it would cost twenty thousand dollars a year to to fund to fund that if we went privately, um, and we wouldn't be able to find a consultant who would give it to us anyway. So I'd, I'd like to make you. It's it's not much of an offer, but I hope I hope you understand that that we're trying to do our best here. If, if you make contact with myself afterwards and my colleague Millie, who's who's up on the same row as you, I'm prepared to write to the NHS. Uh, medical director, Professor Stephen Powis, and Keith Ridge, the chief pharmacist, who sat in front of myself and Sir Mike Penning and said, this is business as usual. It's an unlicensed drug, just like any other unlicensed drug, and any specialist can prescribe it if they wish to. I'm prepared, if you give me the right Absolutely. of confidentiality, to write to those people. I'll get Sir Mike Penning. I'll ask if he'll put his signature to it to challenge that trust and that consultant, because that is absolutely, factually, totally incorrect what they've told you.
Right. Thank the other you very way much. to think about it, just quickly, is to read, for those who are under that suspicion, get the guidelines and read them. Go on the Home Office website, type in cannabis, and all those letters, they don't take more than five minutes to read, explain exactly what the regulations are, print them out, mm. and stuff it under their nose. They're wrong. I mean, when, I actually, when I actually queried it, because I was getting confused with what the epilepsy nurse was saying and what she was saying, they actually called me back and confirmed that this was correct and that they would speak to my epilepsy nurse and tell her she was wrong. There's an updated uh, NHS guidelines that were issued in November that actually state in a table that Bedrocan and Tilray products can be prescribed through the specials route. And if you contact me as well, I'm on Facebook, I'm Alfie's Hope, I'm happy to send you the guidelines. It's completely wrong. And there is, it seems at the moment, I mean, it, it's like we've all said, you know, doctors get into their profession because they want to help, but at the moment there just seems to be this systematic shutdown of supporting families. I mean, we, I support a family at the moment. Their son has been in hospital for three weeks with severe seizures. He's having up to 30 tonic-clonic seizures a day. He has tried Epidiolex and it hasn't worked. They are on their knees asking for Bedrolite. They're not even asking for THC pure product. They're asking for uh, full extract CBD. And they are writing to them and saying, we can't do this because there's no trials. They will watch that child die rather than prescribe this drug. And that is unfortunately how deep this systematic block is at the moment. So, and, you know, once Brexit is passed a bit, hopefully, you know, this, the new campaign that's coming up will really help push this along because it is just disgraceful. The, the Health Select Committee is shortly to announce a call for evidence, or they may have just announced it, where they're going to look into this. So I really do would like you to give your details to Millie and then we can try and help you. Thank you. Okay, Thank uh, you. Could I, just, I, I just wanted to query what you said about um, the randomised controlled trials um, and it being difficult to, to, to tri trial these products. I just don't understand why that is the case, other than in the very, very rare conditions where there just aren't the numbers for the trials. You know, if, even if it's a combination of different cannabinoids within, you know, within, as you said, the whole plant product, surely whatever you're using whatever helps that can be that can be given in a randomized controlled trial you, you may be right but if you take the experience taking canada where most producers produce five different varieties roughly speaking they're all different one high in cbd one high in thc and balanced products in between of different ratios if you then take something like pain or epilepsy uh, then roughly 20 very roughly but I'm just using it as an illustration. 20% of people respond to one, 20% to the other, 20% to the other, 20% to the other. So everyone's very different. So cannabis isn't, there's not a right cannabis for this particular person, for this particular condition. That may need product one, product two, product three, product four, product five. Each one, therefore, will, against placebo, will only respond about 20%. And it's therefore likely, statistically, that that won't be enough to meet the statistical significance. If you can design a study, which may be quite possible, I'm no great designer of trials, that looks at, takes the totality of all those five, then it will clearly be, in my view, it will clearly be positive. Now, that, that hypothesis needs testing, but that's the way to do it. We need to move out of the one drug for one condition mindset, because cannabis don't work that way. Mm.
And it's very consistent, is it, that it's evenly spread? There isn't. No, one yeah, sort broadly of speaking, yes. I mean, it's not perfect mm-hmm. for certain conditions. Most people, for take epilepsy, most people actually will benefit from a high CBD product. But there's a significant number who need a little tiny bit of THC added in. Mm-hmm. So for every condition, it's sorry, I don't know where I'm, who I'm talking about. <laughs> right up to me. There you are. Right. Um, he's in heaven. He's yeah. right up the top. So it, is, it varies from person to person, condition to condition. But broadly speaking, that that what I've said. Yeah is right and illustrates the point. It's also to do with dosing as well, because as Mike said, it works on your endocannabinoid system. So it can treat lots of symptoms because of that, but also some people respond to microdosing. Some people's symptoms get worse if you give too much. It really is, they said in Holland, start low and go slow. But again, some, I mean, I actually tried... Um, some CBD products that were legal in the UK before I went to Holland with Alfie, Charlotte's Web and Haley's Hope. They did nothing. Actually, one of them made him worse. So, as Mike says, it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not one strain that will treat epilepsy. It's Everyone is different. Everyone responds to it differently, which is why trials, a pharmaceutical trial would be so difficult. It's yeah. literally, you just have to try different products and find one that yeah. works. It also depends how you, how you take it. Yeah. That makes prescribing it a lot more difficult. Yeah, it does. which is why we need it the does. education yeah. urgently so doctors understand what they're talking about. Um, my question is, can we say anything about the position of big pharma in the logjam, the pharmaceutical industry? Do you have any insight into where they are in this whole situation? How what their view of clinical trials or something that's <laughs> you been have around... You a lawyer three, with you. <laughs> some, something, that's, something that's been around 3,000 years and doesn't need clinical trials. Whereabouts are they in this argument? Who's going to answer that? <laughs> Not me. Um, I haven't got much money. In, in fairness, I, I, I haven't noticed overtly um, much influence from Big Pharma. I, I, I would be astonished if there wasn't some sort of reaction. Because if you think of opioids, billions of op- dollars of opioids are sold every year. Though that's, when you introduce cannabis, and it's a perfect example in some of the United States where it's been introduced, and they've looked at the opioid prescription against a state that hasn't been introduced to the medical marijuana laws, they've lost mm. 25% of prescriptions. That's 25% of their value, 25% of their shareholding. Anti-anxiety drugs the same. Anti-convulsant drugs the same. So, and then, you know, that's, they will lose money. So at some point, there will be uh, a, a big pharma backlash. Whether that's happened now, um, I, I'm not so anywhere going to So you're not aware that there's even a subterranean backlash uh, well, happening? I, there's no overt evidence of that. Okay. You may think so, but I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, <laughs> need a microphone. Uh, should we take this one? Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm a consultant oncologist, and I'm also the wife of a patient with a brain tumour, so I've got one foot in each camp. Um, and I, I think oncology is very different from the situation that, that you found yourself in. I think if you're the mother of a child with an extremely rare disorder where you're never going to get a randomised control trial, I totally understand why you had to do what you did. But I think... To win over oncologists, we are going to need a licensed preparation and we are going to need it in the formulary because there's no... I don't see that there's a a reticence and an arrogance and a cowardice. I see that there are plenty of drugs that are licensed and that have got evidence behind them. And if you want to put this up front with them for appetite and for energy and well-being, etc., 
um, those trials are very doable, actually, and won't take... There's plenty of patients, so the number of patients will mean these are not going to be long-term trials. And I think you're going to need that evidence if you're going to be able to get those drugs on the formulary, which we would all like. Um, but they are... You know, cannabis is a biochemical agent like any other drug and has side effects and doesn't work for everybody. And I think, you know, we'd be find it very difficult to prescribe an unlicensed medication that we have to take personal responsibility for without the trust's backing um, for symptoms which have other possible treatments available. Um, so on the 1st of November, I did come to work and WhatsApp my colleagues and say, what do we do now? And nobody knew. And there are very few guidelines. I contacted the Royal College of Radiologists, which is our Royal College. They said, mm, we don't know. We're waiting for NICE guidance, interim guidance, which is due this year sometime, I understand, um, which I think will help. But I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't see that there, in oncology that there is a reticence. I think that there is a great interest and a desire to do those trials. Um, but I think that we need to have them. Um, just for example, you know, when I was working on an adolescent unit, we had access to um, a, a cannabinoid for anti-sickness. And it caused a lot of toxicity, a lot of, you know, hallucinations. It didn't work for everybody. They're not you know, for, in oncology, I don't see it as a wonder drug. I see it as a potential benefit in a lot of roles. But we will not know what those roles are and we will not convince oncologists unless we have the data. Um, and we need to start as soon as possible, really, because I think we're wasting time. And I think the way to do it, and I totally understand why, uh, you know, as a campaign, you have to have um, the emotional and the personal. But I think that the way to do it um, for the medical side is to get the medics on board to um, get them to help you structure those trials um, to get pharmaceutical companies involved if necessary um, to get the royal colleges involved um, to get the statisticians involved and to prove that they prove these drugs work because you know patients want them we want to be able to prescribe them and at the moment we can't safely do that um, you know and a lot of patients are accessing them illegally you know, we, well, we know that. Patients ask about them every week. The, the issue that I would say, with regard to that, that I struggle with is that children like Alfie are prescribed medications that are unlicensed and untrialed in children every single day, which cause severe side effects on an anecdotal basis because your colleagues are saying that it's okay to do that. Now, that concerns me a lot. And that's allowed to happen in hospitals every day. Um, and also, as well, again, there is an understanding, a misunderstanding about what medical cannabis is. As Mike was saying, you can't trial one thing for one problem because it won't work, because everyone's different in how they respond to cannabis. I think everybody's different in how they respond to all drugs. And I, yeah. and I, don't, I can't speak Not for sort of paediatric neurology. All I can speak to is oncology. Mm. Um, and, you know, I do think we could have different preparations, different, different dosages. And, you know, this is a lot of what we're doing, you know, is you know, as an oncologist, we're, there's, I've got lots of drugs I can use. I've got lots of drugs I'd like to use that I cannot use because mm. they're not licensed. We don't prescribe unlicensed drugs. We can't even prescribe all the chemotherapy we'd like to prescribe because it's not NICE approved and it's not on the CDF. Mm. So it's not as if we're sort of you know, treating cannabis differently. We're just treating it as no, a drug where there's no guidelines, there's that. no training, there's no licence. Mm. And, and therefore it feels 
you know, why use it rather than a drug that we know works? You don't have an alternative, so no. you have well, to do what you Well, lots of children with epilepsy have no alternative. Yeah. No, absolutely, but I'm talking more, <laughs> yeah. more from an oncology just, point yeah. of view. Maybe let Peter jump in, and then I think we're going to be out of time. I'm really sorry. Yeah, I, I really value the opportunity to interact with you about this because you're obviously a professional in the field. I'm trying to get to the, the bottom of the objection. If I came to you as a seriously ill patient with cancer and I, you said the outlook is very bleak, and I said, OK, I want to try this medical cannabis product that I've researched on the internet, I just want the right to try it, would you still say no to me? What I would say is that I've asked the Trust, I've asked the Royal College, and they've all said, we are not supporting this. And I think, you know, um, it's, it's very difficult. There's nothing in the formula, there's nothing in the pharmacy, there's nothing in the BNF. I don't know what, what dose to use, I don't know what product to use. So we need the training, we need um, guidelines, we need the structure. And I don't think there's any sort of, I think if we had that, you know, we would all feel more confident. There's a lack yeah. of confidence and uncertainty. It's not a sort of, you know, we're heartless people that, you know, no, my husband's got a brain tumor, I understand where patients are coming from. Yeah. And I understand, you know, from, from 13 years as a consultant, but, um, and I encourage patients, but I say, I can't give it to you because I don't know how and I don't know what. And I don't have it in the, so I can write it out on a prescription, but they can take it to the pharmacy. The pharmacist will say, we don't have this. Yeah, yeah but, but I've got to make this point, and I'm fearful here because I'm taking a medical professional on, you know much more about this than me. You can prescribe it, you can take it to the pharmacy, and I have the personal assurance of the chief pharmacist, Dr Keith Ridge, that if you put that prescription in, the system will produce it. You can do it. The Royal College and the Trust are saying they won't, so there's, there is that disparity, and I yeah. think, you know, the consultants on the, on the sort of shop floor, as it is, you know, we need that backup because it's our head on the block if patients get horrendous yeah, I've just been effects. through this with, yeah, with a yeah. private hospital where the prescription was written and the pharmacist said, what on earth is this? I don't even understand it. But the system actually mm. worked. Yeah. Well, I would say it. training guidelines, build our confidence, give us the, da give well, us the data that Mike you have. That's what Mike was saying. Exactly. Exactly. The Medi Medical Cannabis Clinician Society was created to us. train doctors. Exactly. And that's what, you know, that's obviously, like you say, my campaign was you know, based on emotion, but it was also based on, you know, a fact that it made, it's given my son a life, and that's, you know, could, could we do that for thousands of people? And that's why the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society is being created, so clinicians can join, and I'd urge you to join, so Mike can train you, and Absolutely. Mike and, and Peter can help people understand what cannabis is and how it works. And hopefully we need more guidance, we, you know, us working yeah. just as individuals without guidance, we I need the agree. guidance for nationally. Absolutely. I think we're, we're, I agree entirely, we need education, we need guidance, guidance, we need common sense, and it's not a drug of first resort in many instances, it's not a drug of last resort either in my view, but it, it should be the first route, the standard medication, try that, and I'm saying only then consider cannabis when you're educated and able and, and feel confident about doing it um, as a, a, when the standard medication is beginning not to work, that's what I would say. But I think you're right as well, that unfortunately the law was changed and the Department of Health haven't rolled out any training or any real guidance yeah. to doctors yeah. like you and I think that it, it is very unfair that doctors and I know a lot of doctors are getting a lot of hassle about this especially paediatric neurologists which are a small group in this country and that is unfair because what they should have done is rolled out education right at the beginning if they were going to change the law yeah. and they were going to yeah. allow doctors to prescribe then help the doctors to do that yeah. what they've done is change the law and gone no we're not doing it and that's very unfair on you so you know we do understand that and that's what we're trying to now work on is education 
I think that's actually a very good place to leave it, unfortunately. And um, that's a really you know, provoking question. It's been a really interesting discussion. We've heard the other side now as well. And um, thank you all. It remains for me to say thank you very much to Hannah, to Mike, to Peter, and to everybody else for coming. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. Drop us a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud to let us know what you think. If you liked this episode, you can support the Royal Institution on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And don't forget to head to rigb.org to see what talks we have coming up next. <laughs>